Welcome to The Independent Artist, sponsored by the National Association of Independent Artists, NAIA. I'm Douglas Sigworth. I'm a glassblower. I'm Will Armstrong, mixed media artist. Join us as we explore the topics that affect the lives and livelihood of art show artists. Well, welcome to the podcast. Will, how you doing? I'm great, Douglas. Nice to see you again. Nice to hear your voice. Well, we're back at it. Week two. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited about this episode. You've had a really long, in-depth, inspirational conversation with, with Marjolyn Vanderhart, and I can't wait to get into this thing. I tell you, you know, I knew a little bit about it because she started this conversation with me back in 2010, and uh, you'll hear when I say it in the interview, uh, but... I didn't believe that that Facebook and Instagram would be the place we'd be selling our work someday. And she was telling me, no, 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 you know, and so she kind of she kind of saw the writing on the wall and she started working this a long time and it's it's really worked out for her. I'm glad that she had that going into 2020 so that she could work it. She's stuck on the other side of the border, uh, our neighbor up to the north. She's in Toronto. So she didn't have the opportunity to even work any of the local, smaller, or even big promoter shows that have started to open, she's kind of been stuck in Canada. It's been, it's been harder for her, but maybe easier because of the way she set up her business. Absolutely. I mean, she was able to, to make sales without ever having to leave home. Incredible. Before we get into this interview, if you are as disorganized as I am, this may be a little anxiety inducing <laughs> because Marjolyn has it going on. She is completely organized. She's got her mailing list set and it's not too late. If you're disorganized, I'm starting my thing anew. So I'm starting over at 50 years old, like a, like a brand new baby. So um, I think you'll find this both inspirational if you can pull a couple things and, and possibly a little... Uh, panic-inducing. Well, rest assured that if it starts to get too much, you can hit pause, you can come back to it. It is a lot of information. I mean, she did a whole class on this and she's sharing it, most of it all with us right here on the podcast. So it's something you can come back to. It is truly a resource. And even if you adopt a, a few of the things that she's talking about, I'm sure it's going to benefit moving forward, merging it into your on-the-road kind of kind of marketing strategy. She puts on a clinic, Douglas, and she really gave us a gift, especially as our, our second podcast out of the gate really kind of helps people out. And I know it will help me. And I'm sure you can glean a lot of useful information out of this amazing talk. You know, she was one of the first people I wanted to talk to because I've been in doing art shows now for about 20 years. And she's one of the first people who I met at a show that I kind of felt like she took me under her wing I realized from the episode that she didn't realize she had this much influence, but she kind of took me under her wing. She told me all these little tidbits and I was like, you know, eating it up like crazy. And and so I, I really am, am happy that we get to come back and, and talk about the, the business side of being a, a roadshow artist. I think it's going to be really fun over the years to, to reach back into some of those people that have had a huge influence on our careers and talk to them and pick that apart and even let them know. So I can't wait to hear this and I can't wait to get into more conversations. Funny little story about Marjolyn. My first time that I met her, I, I'm pulling up with my you know 30-foot van with a trailer attached up to my booth spot at St. James Court 
And I look over and there's this woman who turns out to be Margolin standing on the top of her minivan, weaving these ratchet straps through the tree branches to tie her, her tent down. And it just went to show how dedicated she is to, you know, just to make sure everything is taken care of here in her business. <laughs> she's, she's prepared for everything That's and right. you're going to hear it. <laughs> Without further ado, here is Margolin Vanderhart. Pour yourself a cup of coffee, folks. This is a long, good one. Welcome to the podcast, Marjolyn Vanderhart from Toronto, Canada. Marjolyn is a mixed media artist and travels to art shows in Canada and the U.S. regularly to personally represent and sell her work. Marjolyn began utilizing social media and internet marketing years ago to foster relationships with her collectors. During this year of COVID, Marjolyn has utilized the network she created as her primary means of selling her work, since most of the in-person events have canceled in reaction to the public health emergency. You can find her work at memoryartgirl.com. Hey, Marjolyn, welcome to The Independent Artist. Hey, Doug, how are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. This is great. This is exciting. This is awesome. This is fun. This is like all news. So uh, this is working a whole different part of my creative brain. <laughs> Good. Good for all of us to grow that way. Yeah. So we go way back. Do you remember where we first met? I believe we met in St. James Court in Louisville. Well, I remember you uh, telling me all the stories about the history of St. James and how it tied into you having your kids there. And we had such great getting to know each other conversations. And I learned a lot about this business and how to become a professional artist from you. No. <laughs> yes. Well, not the glass blowing part. No. The art show market part. Yeah. Well, I've been doing it. I've been through different reinventions of the industry, right? So um, I started back when you had basically a business card and yes. it was first come, first serve for spaces and art fairs. There wasn't any dedication of space. And then when St. James first started, that was a commission show. So um, that oh, was the first beginning of that. Yeah, before they did booth fee stuff. So I am a big firm believer in the independent artist industry. I'm not a uh, the gatekeeping that's done for getting into galleries and different levels as an artist is problematic, especially as a woman. And um, women are highly underrepresented in the gallery circuits and in museums. And so I realized that, well, at independent show and art fairs, I have a little bit more control and the gatekeeping is a little bit less because it's done on a jury level. So uh, that's why the main reason I took that avenue and, and started working that way. That and the fact that um, I love selling my work. I love talking to people and selling it and the adrenaline and the um, actual finding the person to buy it is just, there's really nothing like that. You know, can't get that in a gallery. Uh, well, take me back to what got you into being an artist. I know you come from a family of... Yeah, my father is an art, was an artist. He was a watercolor artist. And we lived outside of Toronto in Canada. And um, he started doing art fairs. And I was a child when we started schlepping to art fairs. We'd leave at three in the morning. It was first come, first um, served for the spaces in the art fairs. That's where I learned kind of the ropes of just uh, setting up booth and 
talking to people and watching my father talk to people. And so then I, uh, as I got older, there's one thing I, I didn't want to do that as a kid. <laughs> I know our kids were the same way. Yeah. When we started out, we had our kids in the back of the booth coloring on blankets with markers. And it wasn't long before we realized that wasn't going to work out. Yeah. So, yeah. So did that experience make you want to put a pause on being an artist or like it really didn't resonate? Well, I think what happened was that I just, my father, for instance, said, you know, get a real job. Like, he's, oh. he's like, you know. So he talked you out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll go and get a degree in um, journalism. So I went into mass communications and did a degree at uh, Carleton University in Canada oh. and did four years of that. But while I was there, um, I sold his work in art fairs and I wrote a lot about women artists and was always with my hand in art world and communications and what art means and how uh, images affect people. And so um, it just, I finished that degree and I was like, okay, so I, I'm not going to look for a job. I'm just going to take my work on the road. And Well, that was a good experience for you. Yeah. Not just for making your own work, but for learning how to market and sell. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And what was his media? What did he... He was a watercolor artist, watercolor landscape artist. So he did a lot of... Um, in Canada, we have a very strong landscape tradition. Okay. And so the um, audience and the public is, you know, they're already been primed for that. And he, he just worked his way right in there. He worked with some dealers and galleries, but his primary form was, were the art fairs. And then he built an addition to our house and he did art in the country. We lived outside and a little bit in the country. And so he put up signs about, you know, about 50 kilometer or 50 mile perimeter around our home with directing people to the location every Saturday morning he put these signs up these big wooden signs and um, people would show up they'd come for the weekend and I would be part of that on the weekend and I would you know have a lemonade stand and create little puppets and stuff like that and sell things and so I was just kind of naturally part of that but it's really interesting because now when I think about how digital marketing works for uh, artists, it's almost the same kind of concept, right? It's yeah. creating signs around us to draw people to us. The tools there are just so much more sophisticated than back then where, you know, that's of course a very traditional type of marketing. But um, what I do now and what many artists should be doing is just really trying to activate those signs that are tools for that are just right through social media and email marketing and paid Facebook ads, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Well, what I find interesting about that story is that at a young age, you were exposed to not just relying on someone else to handle creating opportunities for you. Um, he was showing you that you can participate in these things, uh, but then you can set up your own kind of revenue stream independently. And so um, you've really run with that through social media. Right. It's an entrepreneurial side of things. So it's basically looking at what tools you have and uh, what things you can make and how you can reach the public. And part of that is also learning what products you create will resonate with the public. You just said a bad word. Product. <laughs> Don't us artists kind of shun away from that word? I mean, I'm teasing because I get it. Yeah. We have to understand who do we appeal to and look at it in a detached kind of way. Well, you know, there's, I'm, 
of the slant that there is work that we can do as artists that really speaks, that is what we really feel, you know, an inventive kind of creative space. And then there's work that you can create that is kind of bridging between what people really love to buy and what you have your magic and your energy. So you have to bridge that in, in a development of a product line that has some kind of uh, success, understanding the, um, the demand and what people are looking for is part of the game. It's part of the business, yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And We could make what we are totally and passionately connected to, but when we put it out there, if it doesn't resonate, then you're the starving artist. Right. When I did my fine arts degree, I did a fine arts degree at Ringling School of Art in Florida, and I worked at, uh, I also did a piece of that at Parsons School of Art and Design in New York City. I remember profs telling me, you know, if you're too personal, then what is the point? Like, it's... If you're just speaking to yourself, uh, you're really uh, defeating kind of the whole process. And so even on a high end, I did artist assistantships in New York City and with high end artists. And even them, you know, even they, they, they sit there and they go, okay, yeah, what will people think of this? What will the gallery think of this? Is my clientele going to like this? Like, it's all part of the process. Your communication process is part of that. So... If you always keep that in mind, I think you can constantly push yourself forward as an artist and have some success just to pay the bills to make more work. Why I love this business so much, and we've partnered with selling our work through galleries on the wholesale market, but what I really miss out on is that one-on-one connection with the collector. I just love seeing the expression when something hits. Obviously, everyone isn't going to have a positive reaction, but it lets you know maybe you're not going in the right direction. And it's that connection with who owns your work, who do you appeal to, and you get to know these people really well, and they become an extension of your family and friend network. Right, right. And I think probably the most difficult piece of friction that we're dealing with at the moment by not being able to do art fairs is not gauging that. We don't have a booth where people can walk into the booth and you can see how people, what pieces people go to. I've been doing this for so long that I have a good idea of what energy, what pieces will draw people. But sometimes I'm surprised at how resonant some pieces are that I'm like, oh God, that's awful. And then they, they, it really speaks to, to several people. I'm like, okay, I got to look at that a little different. So this um, piece there, we don't have that so readily on uh, a digital marketing platform and selling online. And we can do it through looking at website visiting and look at what products people are jumping into. But even as a, you know, even as a, um, a consumer of online product, it's really difficult, right? Because even if you go into a store, you know, everything is this screen kind of base. So the brick and mortar or art fair piece of this is really important to have still as part of it. I don't think digital marketing and online selling is going to ever replace um, the whole process. Like it's just it's such an important to have that communication process. Well, going back to when social media first started, I remember having a conversation with you. I had just opened my Facebook page and we were talking about it. And at that point, I was just thinking of it as a way to uh, check out old high school friends if they were married or what they looked like, if they had any kids. And you said, listen, there's an opportunity here. 
there's an opportunity that we can use this platform for sales. And I thought to myself, are you serious? Because, I mean, I just wasn't forward thinking in that way. And so I remember back then is when you started exposing your work to the world through that platform. And can you tell us about that evolution? Yeah, so I guess that was around, you know, Facebook first started, I think for me, around 2009, 2010. And... Um, building that and then Instagram started and I was a little slow to start with Instagram because I just thought you know I, I'm not an early adopter I really I just right. I just kind of muck my way through and go okay everyone's on that I'll jump on that and see because time is precious and so you really want I'm just spending time on stuff that just doesn't have any resonance is a waste so yeah. it just yeah I just kind of kept my ears open eyes open and figured out okay there must be other ways of communicating with people about your work other than going yeah. from show to show. And Facebook was the first mm-hmm. one of doing that. As it progressed, you know, around 2012 to 2015 or so, the shows I found were slowly going down. The top tier art fairs, doing shows for several years. And I thought, okay, something's going on. It's not as resonant. And it's just felt like, okay, maybe people are going more online. Around 2016, when we had the presidential election, usually what happens after a presidential election, there is a huge honeymoon period afterwards of buying. And it didn't happen in 2017. And so I was really concerned. And yes, it could have been the presidential election, but I think more what it was was Amazon. And Amazon had really launched hardcore in 2015, 2016, and online buying was was growing. Around that time, I started to really look at how to monetize the website. And I started to put together kind of the pieces. Okay, how do you buy art online? How do we start looking at that? And I looked at artstorefronts.com website because first I had Shopify. And I mean, I had my own portfolio site with WordPress, but then I was like, it's not a monetized event and not a monetized kind of space. And so I looked at art storefronts and jumped into there and learned a great deal about marketing digitally through them and um, just started building from there. You know, emails tried to really accumulate. I had a pretty good mailing list, but not an email list. And so I really started pushing hard on that. And um, yeah, it just kind of slowly grew from there, just understanding the pieces. Would you say with internet exposure that it's really hard to capture a new buyer's interest? It almost seems to me, looking back on that period, like it went from the buyer having the impulse to buy something that weekend because they might not see the artist for a year to, I'll take a card, I'll go home, I'll measure my space. And if I don't make it back on Sunday, then I'll just go to your website. So working this way through social media and website, is that a way to capture that buyer after the show? Yeah, I think there's two camps and it's getting less and less now because of COVID. But it used to be if I have a website, you know, artists would say, I don't want a website because people won't Mm, buy from the show. The website undermines me selling at the show, which I was like, well, you can't beat them. You have to join them. And the, what's happened with Amazon and online buying, we can't fight that. So we have to find incentives for people to buy at the shows. And if we can't capture them at the shows, then we have to look at how we can do it digitally. 
So I look at it much more as a as a long term kind of approach. Now it used to be, yeah, hit a show and sell a few pieces, and then okay, the show is great, that's it, return. Now I look at a couple matrix metrics. Of course, I'd like to pay my booth fee and pay my expenses at the show. Yeah, but then I also look at how many emails have accumulated, and I go hardcore with that afterwards. So I will build an email list through the weekend. I will send an email that Sunday night to all those people and saying, thank you for joining me. And then I will offer them a discount code that's valid for them for three days so that they can buy online. So basically I've structured it so that my online presence, my website is an extension of the booth. Right. In fact, the, the website has more prints and more selection of work than in the booth. In the booth, usually I only have original artwork. I don't usually carry prints in there. So people will bounce onto the website and go, oh, I can sit, get this. I don't want to spend $3,000. I'll spend a few hundred bucks on a, on a print so I can capture people that way. I find selling artwork, my average price point is around 2000 It takes about uh, a year to capture people uh, digitally for that. So that's through, once I have their email, then they become part of my nurturing process. So mm. I nurture them with emails or romance emails once a week, I will constantly do that until I have a sales event. And then the sales event online, a digital piece, then I go a little bit harder and do sales emails and offer discount for a short period of time. And so there's a whole launching of a digital a digital event. That's how COVID has progressed now. Uh, I, you know, with uh, in-person, in-booth events, then you marry with the digital and then having an online sales event would be sometime when you're not having that regular booth type of showing event. So, right, right, right. So the biggest piece is when I'm showing at a show at an art fair, I tell people, you can buy this work here now for this weekend at this price, because usually what I'll do at an event is price it 20% lower than what's online. So my online oh. prices are 20% more, right? Mm -hmm. That is a good that, incentive right. for buying right now. Right. And I tell people, I said, look, these prices are now at this price point. And if you go online, you'll see them at 20% more. So you have till Sunday night to get that. Not telling them that they'll have a discount for three days after. That's not like a hard sell. That's just, uh, that's how I do my business. Yeah. This is how I do this and it gives them a heads up and they're there. There's this visceral feel and experience. I can offer to deliver it or have them try it oh, overnight yeah. or something where they're actually there's an interactive kind of piece. And mm. usually that works, that pushes people over. And then if they don't buy by then, then it becomes, I give them three days of the code and then it we'll see. And then if they still don't buy, that means that while they're interested, so I have to do a longer period of time of incentive marketing and nurturing marketing to get them going. Well, I like what you said about eliminating low-end prints from the booth because it can take as long to sell a two or $300 print as it does to sell a $2,000 painting. But the difference is you can't be engaged in that bigger sale. So this allows you to channel your resources. You can send the print buyers to the website and focus in your attention on the substantial work. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's... 
there's a big piece of this and it's called scarcity, right? And scarcity is a concept which if we think of as original artists is um, a big value proposition here. And if we constantly push that, then we can uh, get a return on it. So the concept mm-hmm. that I make a painting and that you can get that painting like a couch next week is not, it's, it's not true. Yeah, it's one of a kind type yeah. of piece. And we are battling... Uh, a culture which is all about the mass production of stuff. And if yeah, we emphasize sure. that this is one of a kind, yeah, you can buy a print for sure. It is not as valuable as this. If you pay, you know, two yeah. or 3000 or more for a piece of art, you are the only one who's going to have that piece. You own that piece. And I think we have to educate the public for that and make them realize that. And presenting a booth without prints Mm-hmm. Sets that. Con- I mean, people ask me all the time, "Do you do prints?" I went, "Yeah, I do prints, but they're yeah. not here. They're online. <laughs> right. I don't. This is where you can get one of a kind, and it's also no knowing where my highest return is. Like most of my money comes from originals, so right. I would right. rather spend. I would rather sell a couple of two thousand dollars than you know ten at two hundred. Like it's just as sure. Yeah, as the whole thing is it's just easier. So it's just about <laughs> understanding how to get those people. Right, and we're always battling the concept of the value of the art being placed on how long it took to make it and not the value being placed on the creativeness of the design and the uniqueness of the individual work of art. Right, and we have the digital tools now to do that. So we can build the infrastructure around us that is about how we make the piece, how we make one of a kind type of pieces. So I do a lot of short little videos, which I put on my social media. I do Facebook ads with those videos and the videos are me creating the handmade product. And I really emphasize that, that we're, it's one of a kind. I'm an artist. I make this, everything passes through my hands. When you buy an original piece, and right. increasing the value and experience of the special one-of-a-kind approach. And when people come to an art fair, mm-hmm. you know, they're looking to buy from an artist. They're not right, going right. to a gallery. So yeah. they want some kind of personable kind of space. Totally. So if you use the digital tools, the, the videos and the little uh, photos and things like that, then you can really push that and emphasize that to those clients who then land on your email list. Right. I have to say with being friends with you and your artist profile that I really like scrolling through and seeing your time-lapse photography videos Mm -hmm. on uh, how you make a piece, how you do the layering, how you paint over those layers. And I find it fascinating. It gets me to stop and look and become engaged Mm -hmm. in your process. So let me ask you, if I pause and look or click, does that get your content in my news feed more often then? Yeah, so if you're on Instagram, if you interact with somebody, um, like or save their post or make a comment on there, then what the algorithms will be that they start streaming through in your Instagram. Ah. So if people are following and say you get followers and you're not actually interacting with them, they won't land in your feed. So you have to actually activate that piece and engage. Okay. And that's, you know, the premise of social is that engagement is that it's the same with Facebook is that okay. you have to engage in order for it to be part of your feed. It's, it's um, Facebook and Instagram. You know, when you start to put posts out there, you have to understand that less than 0.03% of your posts actually reach people. 
So what? even if uh, even if you post something and you can work with hashtags right on your Instagram feed and it will spread it out a little bit more. But generally when you post, it's really, really minimal unless you do some ad strategy, paid ad strategy. So if you pay for the ads, does this give you another crack at getting those people who don't engage um, yeah. in your yeah. uh, posts to try and get them yep. back into the fold so they see your posts you exactly. do that aren't mm -hmm. paid for? Exactly. And you don't need to spend a lot. I spend generally $5 a day. What I do is I'll create blog posts. So I'll create some piece of content right. where people can really dive into and they jump onto the website. So they're a long time on the site reading mm -hmm. the blog post. Mm -hmm. And then I will do a Facebook ad of that blog post, $5 a day, and it will spread out to everybody who has interacted with me one way or the other. So I build <sighs> audiences on Facebook. So the Facebook structure, business manager structure is such where you can build an audience that you can target. And so that audience can be your website visitors, your subscribers, your people who've, who've engaged with your Facebook page in the past six months, or people who've engaged with your, with your Instagram in the last six months. So huh. you build those audiences and then you target ads to those people. And then that spreads out beyond the 0.03% that would organic post it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you can really hone in on where people are following you, like through Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, your website. Yeah, Facebook and Instagram are the same company. So you can, it, it goes back and forth. YouTube is a different um, party. And YouTube is really what I found lately is that people are bouncing off of Facebook and they don't want to deal with Facebook. So I developed a YouTube channel, which is basically a place where people can watch uh, the live stream events that I do and they can find other videos in there. So it gives another channel. I haven't done any marketing on there as far as paid systems there, but uh, that okay. the algorithms on YouTube <clears throat> are quite active. They're really trying to build a platform. So their organic reach is pretty good. So okay. it's just kind of understanding where the algorithms are. I'm heavy, heavy. Most of my buyers are on Facebook. So right, right, right. if you know where your buyers are, then that's where you stream to. Like TikTok is the biggest thing, and but TikTok uh, skews younger. And my <laughs> buyer is generally over 45, 50, and they're not yeah, on TikTok. Yeah. So it's you know, trying to understand where you spend your time and energy and focus on building. The other platform that's building really quickly and is really strong is Pinterest. Oh. And, you know, these are brand awareness pieces. So if you're in an art fair, you know, you've already um, been within an environment, you're within an environment that, you know, people are looking for original one-of-a-kind pieces. Yeah. So you've already gotten the first step of brand awareness. But yes. digitally, we're just trying to find, we're just trolling for people who are just looking for something. So Pinterest, Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, they're all visual kind of ways of trolling and trying to create people at the top of the sales funnel, that brand awareness to get people just to know about you. Once they know about you, then you can start to repeat and then hopefully they'll consider you and jump onto your email list. Right. But if you look at your business um, approach to marketing as a sales funnel, your top tier is just getting awareness digitally of people. You know, many people say, oh, I can't sell anything on Facebook or I don't really sell anything in Instagram. And that's, you know, some people do sell on Instagram and I don't. 
I have a client that is um, not as engaged on Instagram. So they're on Facebook and it takes a long period of time. So, but that being said, people can bounce back and forth and I'm just about all I use those platforms is just trying to pull people closer to be more aware of me. So do you have separate Facebook pages for your art and then for your personal stuff so you can you know, connect with your friends and your family and you don't have to be completely transparent out to the world? Yeah, so I have, so Facebook works where you have to have a personal page. Everyone needs a personal root page. And then I have a business page that's Memory Art Girl. And so Marjolyn Van Hart is basically, I'll do personal kind of stuff, maybe some family stuff, but I always, my branding, very aware of my branding consistently in that um, I work with themes of nostalgia and woman-centered work and family-centered work. So even my personal page brings in those kind of pieces. So I'll, you know, post maybe silly videos that I find that have, you know, women kind of stuff or nostalgic old videos or old movies, that kind of thing. So I'm always aware of the brand of Memory Art Girl and how it ripples through and goes deep. Um, I started out like what you're describing, having a, a Sigworth Glass business page where people can like it. Mm-hmm. But then a few years ago, I had heard that that Facebook was going to start throttling how your stuff is seen. And so I jumped off of that mm-hmm. and I created a personal page of Sigworth Glass and was trying to connect to collectors that way. Um, but then now I see there's even throttling in that regards. So, right. So I'm just wondering like how to get my posts noticed and seen. Right. Now you have to think, so if you're doing a paid ad strategy, a personal page will not work. Yeah, I get so that So you now. need, yeah, a business page in order to get the analytics so that Facebook can use that as a promotional sponsored vehicle. To get increased engagement on Facebook, really the best solution is to go the business page route do yeah, yeah. build the business manager piece of that and build contacts out that way, build your audiences and it will it will slowly gain traction that way. I guess what I was doing, trying to do was a workaround. Yeah. I didn't want to spend any money on Facebook, but now I realize that unless you do, you're just scattering your resources in the wind and have absolutely no idea who actually sees your posts. No. The other piece of it is that it's really important to constantly post. I post every day on Facebook. The reason I do that is then Facebook sees how much engagement I'm doing and feeding the machine. And then they will then return with spreading stuff a little bit easier. I also do live events on Facebook and the algorithms of that go really over the top. They Facebook pushes that out a lot easier too and gets to a wider organic reach as well. The more you feed that machine, the more the machine will return for you. And then if you do paid ads, then it's a a whole other issue. So your reach can go totally crazy and engagement can really push too. Well, then Facebook will see us as their customer and not someone trying to work around the system. You know, I saw that documentary on Netflix about Facebook um, how they will mine what we look at online yeah. and they will sell that information out to the world and we become the product. Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's a deal with the devil to a certain degree. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Well, I think I know where you're going here. It's like uh, it's like people might say, let's take a stand against Facebook, yeah. but let's face it, that genie isn't going back in the bottle. No. So uh, we have to learn how to work with the system. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, it, it really is uh, trying to activate the tools that are right in front of us. I don't think... You know, I do Facebook marketing and I've been working with that platform for a couple of years. It's, it's, it's glitchy and challenging. It's got privacy issues and it's got security issues. I mean, I'm, my Facebook business manager was hacked last October and there are ads starting to run for motorcycles and cars on my platform. Jesus. You know, it was not pretty. And I was in the middle of a major campaign for Black Friday and I was like, well, that just screwed all that. So the lesson learned from that is security is not to be dismissed. I mean, I strongly urge people to do two-step verification and in, in getting into any kind of digital marketing tools, use that because it, it's one stop, it's one wall to stop people from hacking in. We're going to take a short break and listen to some clips from our next episode where Will sits down with Stephen King, the executive director of the Des Moines Arts Festival. As Carol used to say, we're not the dragons. We really are trying to be partners in this. We realize that we're here for you and you are here for us. We want to do the best that we can. It sounds like we're pretty good. Are we Are we looking good for, for the festival this year? We are looking good. What does that do to our beer tent there at the DMAF? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> By the end of June, Will, nothing. And one of the reasons I'm still in this business is Thursday. I love load-in. It's like a big family reunion, isn't it? So did you develop a class this year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, so last spring when everything shut down, uh, uh, 2000, fall 2019, I was starting to do workshops with other artists in Toronto on how to go on digitally and how to launch on a digital marketing platform. And then when COVID hit, it sped everything up. So... Last uh, summer, I launched a course. It's courses.bdhdigital.ca. Basically, it's a marketing education course where it breaks down the four pieces that you need in order to be successful. So I created this. Basically, it's a four or five hour crash course. And once you go through it and you do activate the pieces, you'll start selling. Like if you have the product, it's a total way of putting it. And it's been great because the people who have done it in the last six months, there's really nothing like it when people say, hey, you know, I sold a few pieces that I had never even thought that I could sell online. And so the four pieces of the first piece is website design and what are your best practices for website design. The second piece is how to optimize your website, which means how do you push that website out there with content marketing and email marketing uh, because you can build something, but if you don't push it out there, then there's really no point. And then the third piece is social media, uh, organic growth, and the different types of platforms to work with that. And the final piece is a Facebook paid ad strategy. And what's the cheapest, most effective way of using Facebook paid ads in order to get your product out there and your website out there. So it really breaks it down really nicely. I just am uh, launching a... A playbook, an art, uh, an art launch playbook for online sales. Because part of the issue with COVID and without art fairs is that how you create an event 
digitally, virtually, and pull people towards you to buy work and create that incentive. So if you sign up for my email list, you'll get that launch playbook. You know, it's basically gives you the stages of how you build up the work, create the work, then you start communicating about through blog posting. So you start to warm up people going, okay, yeah, this is happening. And then you do nurturing emails with that and you do Facebook paid ads. And then it goes into basically 10 days before you create the events. A week before you do a live event, announcing people to invite them to a virtual live art show. And then you do email marketing with that and ad system with it. And then you do the live events and then you do the post event and you have a sale that's at the live event and the sale runs for about three or four days after and and then you shut down. So I just did that for International Women's Day. It was pretty good. Actually, it sold a few pieces and a few prints and, you know, kind of pulling something out of the air. So it was good. So I remember you talking about uh, using these steps and describing all of them as a layering. Yeah. And you may put stuff out there and you might not see a direct return. It may come later. Yeah. Well, we've had that same kind of reality on the road where we might have a buyer who saw us in a booth and it took them 10 years before they, they bought something from yeah. us. So in this situation, we now have a digital client um, who's thinking about us. Right, exactly. So it's the same kind of, marketing is like that, right? You don't really know what's the hook. You don't know what pushes people over the edge to say, okay, I'm going to buy that. So Yeah, I remember hearing from years ago about marketing that a customer will need to be exposed to you three times before they will show up at your door, like a postcard or an email or a billboard or, or website, something like that. Yeah, I wish it was three times. It's now 17 times. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many information <laughs> totally bombarding yeah. us on a daily yeah. basis. So you have to just constantly be pushing on all different levels you know, present yourself and be relevant, be in front of people. I think probably the biggest challenge with COVID is just that artists feel like, well, out of sight, out of mind, and no one really, you know, will reach out or, you know, what's the point? What's the point? And I've gone totally the other side of that and gone, I'm just going to keep pushing it every day, keep doing it, pushing it, pushing it out there. And, um, yeah, I'm in front of people. So when people are ready and they're looking, then I'm there. You know, they may be looking, they might be buying a house or they may be sitting in their house for the past year and haven't changed anything around and they need something different. And they're like, oh, oh there's an email from Memory Art Girl, Marjolyn Vanderhart. Oh, well, I'll have a look and see what she's got. Oh, she's got a show coming up. Oh, we'll jump on to that um, Facebook Live event that's happening and we'll see what she's got. And at the Facebook Live event, I'll go through all the pieces. I'll merchandise the piece. I'll show it from the side and the back. I'll talk about the story. It's almost like being in the booth, actually. It's really great. Like you just talk and you just yap a lot. And then, okay, and then you take that video and you send it to your email subscribers. And then people look at, they look at it and they say, they see the merchandising of it. And then they jump onto the website and then they can buy it with an incentive to buy within a short period of time. So it's really about creating this layering, 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 and then pushing hard and then taking a step back, and layering, 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 and then pushing hard. So, Well, one thing I struggle with in that regard is, you know, this was something that was kind of ingrained in me um, in art school, and that was 
you should avoid being a shameless self-promoter. Like it could be a real turnoff to collectors. And it just makes me wonder, you know, if if the public is used to that now with, with Facebook, if people are used to just seeing people put themselves out there all the time. So it is a good way for us to step into that because I don't want, you know, the posting every day to be a complete turn Yeah, I think... I think that there is a realization that, you know, art is, there's just not a lot of art accessible at the moment. And um, I think that they will tolerate a little bit more. You know, there's a lot of artists that say, oh, well, I don't want to email too much because then people unsubscribe. And my attitude towards that is, well, even if they unsubscribe, they still see you on social. They still see you on Facebook and Instagram. You still have their email list so that you can create an audience on Facebook so that you can target those people through Facebook ads to get to those people. And if they're not interested in the email, then that's fine. You know, it's it's time to move on. Like it's just they don't want to be confronted with it so much in front of them. But maybe they'll resubscribe if they see it again on social. So... Right. It's like it's a moment in time. It's like they were interested at one time and now they're not. It's best just to have them move on so that you're not, you know, continually trying to to persuade them. If we just suck it up and just go, okay, I'm just going to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. It's something will turn because out of sight, out of mind is really if you don't if you don't prove yourself as relevant, then you're not going to get anything. So. And nobody's going to stand up and do it for you. So right. uh, you better just get out there and, and do it for right. yourself. So so that links to virtual shows. So there's a lot of art fairs that are doing virtual shows. And I think there's artists that think that that is a way that they don't have to step up to for themselves and just say, okay, well, I'm going to take the virtual show as a way uh, of representing me, much as art fairs, right? I mean, many artists go into art fairs and they say, okay, well, I'm on the art fair, so I don't have to do any marketing. And it's just not, that's just just not true. Like it, you can do marketing that is above and beyond what the art fair does. So for instance, like in La Quinta, I do a La Quinta show and I'll spend on average about $400 in Facebook ads, just doing locational area stuff of Palm Springs and LA and that area. And um, I did this past year, I did a giveaway of tickets and I sold a piece. People came in and they came through the ad and they came to La Quinta. And so you just, you have to do your own kind of pull of people to an art fair, especially if you're in an event where you know, okay, they're working hard on promotion themselves. So how do I rise to the top and how do I make uh, a little bit more of a target for the show? And the art fair itself was really very thankful because they realized, oh yeah, that's great. You put money towards it. You really activated it. You were all the time on social So I think artists have to take their own kind of entrepreneurial piece and digitally market themselves and bring that to the art fair and then maximize the return from the art fair as well. The virtual show is a different story. The problem with the virtual show is that marketing myself, I can't do it geolocation. Why would I market my website and my email list for that virtual show when they can come to me independently, right? That... And you've already worked so hard to find out who these people are through analytics, right. what they look at, and how they got to your right. site. So the trick here is trying to understand that paradigm, right? So the art shows or the art fairs have to somewhat understand that, you know, they have an expectation that artists are going to promote themselves 
and pull people to their virtual show. When in reality... Well, that goes against what most artists probably think. Like if I pay for a booth fee or I'm giving a commission to a virtual site, that they need to bring the customers to me. Yeah. That that is part of what we're paying yeah. for. Yeah, and, and, and so, yeah, so you can buy space. Like, so I will go on a virtual show in order to buy space and be on their platform or I'm on an art fair to be on their platform or be in their events. So that enables me to be in front of their people that they're marketing to. And that is the key. On a virtual show, they have to market themselves. It's their social, it's their clientele, it's their collectors, it's the loyalty of their buyer who's coming to their event. And they're promoting me because they want to draw or give something to their collectors, right? And the art fair on a real life um, level, it's a little bit different, right? So they are promoting to their collectors, but you can help because you're building your own email list and you're saying, okay, I'm here, I'm now, I'm in real life. So it's the two are not equal. They're not the same kind of concept. And I think that type of thought has to really, we have to understand that the online buying community is completely different than your in-person community right? It's completely different. It's, it doesn't, it, I don't see a huge alliance between the two. I think you can find bridges between them, but people who are sitting and clicking through on a computer, uh, you know, they're happy to do that and you have to serve that, right? So it's the virtual show has to play into that and they have to find people who can be aligned with their events. So a show like Winter Park which is an incredible show, one of the top five in the US, has a virtual show and they don't even have a Facebook event. There's no marketing social, there's nothing. And it's like, okay, so what is it you want? They want the artist to promote. And then the artists are sitting there and going, well, why are you not promoting, right? It's really, it's a partnering event where we're all in this, where we all do the layering of marketing. The more we push it out there on all so many levels and channels, we all benefit. And I think that that, well, maybe Winter Park did do it, but I didn't see a lot. So, and I know there were a lot of people complaining about it. So it wasn't being that successful. So that's, it's a long, it's a long game as well. I think also part of the issue is that art fairs, when they're not running, they have an opportunity for the rest of the year to really build alliances and put themselves in front of people digitally. So shows like Cottonwood in Dallas is phenomenal. They've done a great job and they're not a gated, they're not a gated event. They don't get emails from people walking in there. So they can't market to those people, but they have been managing to get emails from buying their merchandise and that kind of thing. So they have some kind of clientele, but they're more than anything, they've been really putting themselves relevant and promoting artists through the rest of the year, even when the event isn't happening. Our monk has also done that. Like they've also kind of situated themselves going, okay, how do we promote off time, low time? And then we build to this event. So if, if you take that type of marketing and look at art fairs through that lens, then you see, okay, I have more of a chance of succeeding. Well, I think the reason um, that shows don't do this is because it's, they, may, they just don't have the understanding that this is how the system works. 
and being a vol a lot of them are volunteer yeah. um, organizations. They don't have the time to be constantly marketing and constantly posting. Yeah. But maybe this new awareness that you're bringing about will, you know, move them in that direction. You know, I wanted to go back and ask, how do you manage your mailing list? Yeah, I work with Mailchimp. Um, and I find that the easiest. And I will, I have a pop-up email lead capture that's on my website. So as soon as you bounce on my website, there will be um, an incentive to put your email in and you'll get a discount for a short period of time to do that. That then streams into MailChimp. And then when I do art fairs, I do a giveaway at the show. So I'll do a giveaway with a small raffle and a small little piece and people sign up for my email list and they can qualify for that giveaway. And then those emails get manually put into my MailChimp. And then I usually group in MailChimp, I'll group them or tag them with specific areas. So I can then target email those people when I go back to that area. So um, Armonk, I have a pretty good mailing list. So I will target those people when I'm coming through and saying, hey, I'm back here at the art fair, that kind of thing. So it's a way that you can just, you know, um, be more specific. I know that you can do it through zip codes and area and that kind of thing. But I generally do according to which show is where I'm trying to repeat my marketing, that kind of thing. Uh, have you removed taking the physical address or do you still take... Um, all data. Um, no, no, it just all goes into the same kind of uh, bowl. I mean, people who subscribe all digitally, I know that just based upon um, you can see how they've subscribed. Um, so, yeah, I don't really do a location based upon where they've subscribed from. I just find a digital kind of online piece is a completely different market. So, I just kind of I'm working with them in two different ways that way. No, I'm talking about like a physical address for print media, like a postcard, or have you just eliminated all of that? Oh, right. Yeah. No, I don't. Do <laughs> I know. I'm well, sorry. I, just, I brought up a really <laughs> outdated method. <laughs> no, I have kind of PTSD about that. I used to oh, do no. <laughs> major mailings. <laughs> yeah. Like my father, my father, when I was a kid, he would do a postcard, handwritten postcard, which he got printed out. And then I would do door-to-door -door delivery of that in the neighborhood. So thousands of these things I would put in people's... I'm sorry. I hope I didn't bring up a triggering event here. Yeah, we don't <laughs> touch that. I know that there's a whole move towards that. And I know that some artists do that. And I think that having something in the mail is great. But um, I don't generally do that. So if somebody subscribes to your MailChimp from your website... Um, do they get grouped together organically or do you have them do like a checkbox so you know where they're from? Yeah, you can you can yeah, you can set up a field in MailChimp to do that and say, you know, what your zip code is and then you can retarget those people. Yeah. I don't do that, but I you can. I know there are several artists who do that, so it'll be more specific for sure. I, I guess I mean if they come across your site digitally, like through Facebook or whatever. Um, that if it then turns out that you're doing a physical show in their location, you're able to market and target them to that right, show. Right. Like someone finds you who lives in Kansas City, but then yeah. it turns out you can market them when you're at Brookside or Plaza. Yeah. You know, one of the things with Art Fair is that that's our lead generator, right? Like that's where we get our growing growth. And so after a few months of that, I was like, okay, we really have to work hard 
how do we work hard on building the email list? So I started doing this giveaway system starting in January that's in a Facebook ad that's just cold audiences. So people who don't know me at all, it's worked really well. I think I get on average about 300 emails for the past uh, March and February since I started. So that's 600. So that's incredible. Um, now, I don't know how valuable those leads are. This is the problem with that kind of thing is that you're doing a giveaway and it's a freebie and it's a print. So it's not an original who buys, you know, it's it's basically a brand awareness kind of effect where I'm just trying to get people a little bit closer. Yep, they gave me their email. Now they're in this nurturing process and then we'll see. So I don't know at the moment. Yeah, we'll see if it actually translates into big sales. I don't know. We'll see. So, you know, before this year, um, the idea of promotions and sales was a real turnoff to me because we work so hard yeah. and the travel expenses are so high that there just doesn't seem like a, a margin in there that we could offer those kinds of discounts. Yeah. But then I took a look at things a little differently and I saw that you know, our gross sales for doing shows, typically we would spend about 25% of those gross sales on the expenses to do the show with booth fees and travel expenses. So um, on our online this year, we decided to give that a try <clears throat> and see if that was mm -hmm. a good figure to encourage um, sales and encourage people to, to buy through our website. And it was successful. That seemed to yeah. be a good number for people yeah. to, to jump at it. Yeah, the cost of doing shows when you're not doing them, like I've been doing them for 30 years and I don't think, and before this happened, I was like, okay, I really got to pull back. How do I get off of this? And then all of a sudden it's cut off and now I'm not spending and I don't have the bills every month. I'm like, I got to tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's like looking at the bottom line. So it's much money. Yeah. So much money. Yeah. But it's it's so important to get that in-person inspiration. I mean, there is value in that. So this is where it becomes what exactly is the value of an art fair and really looking at it closely. And the number one thing is what I had said, that sense of... I don't see how people react to the work initially. I don't see other artists, what they're doing and what they're selling. I don't have that visceral feel of what's working. It's all guesswork digitally. So the growth of the work, I find it, it's all about, okay, how do I, what's the next step? Like, how do I push the work next, right? Because I'm not feeding off of anything, right? I don't nothing's open, nothing, everything's still in lockdown here in Toronto. So there's no Art Gallery of Ontario, there's nothing open. So it just becomes, I think that understanding that value of an art fair, I mean, that's part of what you have to build into the value that you get the return. You know, when you go to Kansas City and you go to the museums there, which every time I go to an art fair, I'll go someplace to a museum or Dallas or New York, wherever, that perk, that piece that feeds, that's amazing. You know, that stuff is just, it feeds the work and it makes it better and you get better at what you're doing because you're always, you're a little bit on the edge, right? Um, how will what we went through this year with everything being in lockdown and you selling from home and through the website, how will that change going forward when you're back out on the road doing shows again? Or will it be the same as usual? I don't know. I think I'm uh, a lot better at understanding value as far as what the art fairs are doing. And I'm just not going to tolerate it. There's just no, there's just no excuse for art fairs to just uh, not promote and not do some kind of 
um, active promotion of the artist and reaching digitally out to people. I mean, I've been able to do it and many artists have been able to kind of shift. There's no reason that art fairs can't do it. So I think, I mean, if anything that the Independent Artist Association really, you know, can do is emphasize that to art fairs. Like, and you can check, as artists, we can check to see how they're doing, what kind of ad systems that they're doing. You can go on their Facebook page and see what they're posting. You can go on their social Instagram, anything else. And you can look, I mean, on their Facebook page, you can actually check to see if they're running ads just by going, there's a box in there called page transparency and you click on that and it will take you to the ads if they're running ads. And if they're running ads and you're like, okay, so they're, they're on top of it. You can go on their website and you can see if it digitally comes out. You know, what does it look like? How are they promoting it? That kind of thing. You can Google the show. And if there's a Google ad that comes up, where is it ranked? Is it up there? If they're ranked pretty high, then their search engine optimization is pretty good. So they're like on top of that. Like that kind of stuff is stuff as artists. If we're going to spend six, seven hundred, a thousand dollars to do a show or fifteen hundred to travel, do there, take the risk be in the weather and all that, the least they can do really is to market it onto a completely different level. So so this sounds like it's an entirely new way that you're going to vet yeah. your shows. Like in the past, it might be, you know, how the booth locations were, what quality yeah. of customers came to the show, but now you're not going to waste your time without doing a show that follows these kinds of marketing protocols. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we can just set up in a closet. It's the same thing. Uh, <laughs> well, I've thought about it. <laughs> Here you go. I have a show in my closet. Might as well. And it's a lot cheaper. <laughs> I'd sell as much. <laughs> so uh, what do you see as being the future of your art business here moving forward? I think that we're going to be in a pretty intense time when things start to open up again in 2022. I think 2022 is when the really big art fairs will kick. I mean, I'm scheduled to go to La Quinta in November. Oh, so it's, yeah, us too. That's uh, our oh, first good. time. Maybe we'll be booth awesome. neighbors. Yeah. Um, they've been working really hard on marketing and stuff like that. So we'll see what happens from there. It's a long way to go. So what do you mean by intense? Do you mean like there'll be a high demand for our work? Yeah, I do. I do. I think that um, people are dying to get and feel and interact and see. And I mean, I've seen it a little bit in Florida with some of the shows and the artists doing sh the Florida shows. Have you done any shows in Florida? No, we have not done a single show since last March. Okay. So from looking on Facebook and like, it looks like people have doing somewhat down there. So, I mean, my market in Florida is not great. So I, I kind of avoid that area. But once Texas starts running again and... Southwest, I think it's just going to be a pent up spending. I hope. That's what I'm counting on. Yeah. Um, I've heard that people are just sitting on their stimulus money waiting to spend it. Right. I mean, those who have expendable income, not those who are struggling and lost their jobs. No, who are trying to pay their rent and pay for food. I mean, I think the food crisis issue is pretty massive. We've got a pretty bad one here in Toronto at the moment. So people have to, I think at the moment, my, just based on the digital marketing piece that's happened in the sales, I've sold a lot more to Canadians because in Canada, we're a little bit more, we're not as scared. The, the, there's a social infrastructure. So things, money's been pumping through. 
And it's not great, but it's still doesn't the fear is a little bit less as the vaccines are going down the states. I just feel people are a little bit hesitant. They're still a little bit scared. And people don't buy big pieces of artwork when they're scared. But this doesn't happen. So you have to just wait till things start to come out a little bit normal. So when the pandemic first happened last March, um, were you confident that what you've built with social media and the website would carry you through? Or were you you know, scared like the rest of us, not sure what the future held. No, I was, <laughs> I was, so my attitude was about timing. So I got, I was in La Quinta in Palm Springs and came back by the middle of March. I had five shows booked through Texas and everywhere. It was a great, great schedule. And oh, um, us too. Was, I was in denial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's just overreacting. It'll be fine, right? right. And then when everything shut down, <laughs> Right, right. It'll all be good by by fall. We'll all right. be good. Right. That's what I, yeah. I thought, okay, well, maybe we will, um, maybe we should just go a little bit hard in the near future because all of those five shows, they were all canceled. I thought, okay, well, we've got the inventory. Let's try. So people started, what I watched, what people started doing was um, like little shows or marketing events or virtual shows in April. And I thought, okay, it's too early. You got to, it's all about timing. Let's just wait. And I waited for Mother's Day and in May and I did the week before um, a Mother's Day sale. So I basically did the launch playbook um, the first time of that and um, really pushed hard. And what was happening, um, I sold really well. Like it was, I don't know, dollars $20,000 off of that sale, which I have to tell you, I felt I was in Vegas. Like it was this bizarre, I mean, it was hard work because I was, you know, every week I was emailing people and the emails were about nurturing and understanding and empathy and understanding the fear. We were all in this place of fear and this place of like, how do we look at the bright side of things? How, where are we finding, you know, the light? And that's what I was offering. I was offering art that had that. And so by May, I had been nurturing this stuff for about six weeks. And then I went, okay, it's for sale. And even before the sale even went live, I had uh, sales of large scale pieces from Oregon to Texas, that kind of thing for people who were either feeling like they needed something to say, okay, things are normal, or they felt like let's support artists. Artists are being hit hard by this. There was this sense that culture was going to be just totally gone. So it was great. It was it went really well, and I learned a lot. I didn't do any live event or anything then. It was still all through email marketing, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, and then it was just like, okay, let's take a step back and and go. Okay, now what's next? And I really didn't know. Like I just thought we're just going to build the nurturing, keep connection with people until Black Friday. So the fourth quarter on Black Friday is so active. And um, I extended the Black Friday sale by a couple of weeks. And then I did the special one day a piece starting December 1st, little pieces, 25 days. And yeah, that fourth quarter was awesome too. So it was this constant. My thought was, let's just keep doing what we've been doing. Keep the emails light and bright and offer something of an option, an outlook. And then parallel with that, I was developing this digital marketing course for artists. So I was coaching artists. I was doing these webinars and I was trying to 
really help people to kind of get them online as well. And that, you know, really kind of um, validated what I was doing as well. So it was like, okay, in conjunction with that, okay, we're moving, we're moving through that. Now things I think are a little bit different. So I think the burnout is pretty high as, as far as, um, you know, people don't, you know, they're just trying to get through to the end. They're just, let's just hold on. Yep, lights at the end of the yeah. tunnel. Oh, I think it's pretty cool that you had that gifted May, um, not just the, the income, but you had the the validation yeah. that what you had built um, would would give you a return and you could kind of count on that to carry you through. Yeah. It would have been a whole different story yeah. if you launched those events and nobody came. Right, and I, when the, the Mother's Day thing happened and it worked, that is what really drove me to put the course together because I don't, nothing I put into that course is some is something that I haven't done and it hasn't worked. It's just, I won't promote it, teach it and share it with other artists and going. So when the Mother's Day event happened and I looked at what I did, I just broke it down and created this course. And I was like, okay, do this. This is possible. I did it. It's, it doesn't mean, and even though, yes, I've been building my email list since 2017, for sure. And, but I don't have a huge Instagram following. I mean, I, you know, I have a few thousand people. Facebook, I have a couple thousand, maybe 1,500 people who follow it. So it's not, you know, it's not huge. I have an email. It's more than I've got. Well, <laughs> but we have, we have, you know, this email list, right? And this email list is the core group of people who are loyal. They're, those are the people that you want to really build and nurture and be part of. They're your tribe. And those are the people I had at that time, probably around 1,500 people on that email list. So... Yeah, so that's that's how I was like, okay, let's build that. Let's really work with that. And once it all worked, I was like, okay, let's put it into the course. And yeah, so that's where we're at now. Well, it's great that you not only designed this for you know yourself, but you took you took what you learned and you are wanting to help other people, help other members of the artist community. And yeah, I think that is just fantastic. You've just always been so generous with me with, with your information and your guidance and suggestions on how this business works. It always seems so crazy to me that we are a community of artists who live thousands of miles away from each other. But, you know, a show happens and we all descend on one city like Fort Worth, Texas yeah. or, you know, Miami, Florida. And we see our artist community more often than we see people, yeah. you know, that we're really close to in our our own neck of the woods. What I found is that, you know, there's basically two tiers. There's artists like ourselves who do high-end shows, but there's just, most artists are not. Most artists are just trying to understand how do you jury, how do you put a booth together, you know, and the digital marketing was just, there were so many pieces to understand. And so most of the students who have taken the course are people who are just beginning. They have a body of work, but they've never really shown in art fairs or they've shown just a little bit and haven't had a huge success. So it really enables people to start up. I've had jewelers who've taken the course and jewelers are pretty sophisticated marketers, I find. And it's helped a few of them as far as really systematizing what process to go. If, that, if anything, that's what the course does. It just kind of lays step by step, which I think is the biggest issue for many of us. It's like, okay, where do I start? Like, how do I start this? I have all these pieces, but where do I start? What's the most effective, efficient way of doing it? And the course has enabled people who are a little bit more mid-range to go, okay, push it through. But I found artists who are on you know, 
different Facebook groups like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do that. I do that. And it's like, okay, well, then that's great. You know, this is to help people who need some help. So that's all good. This course is so great for new people just trying to learn how to get their footing in the business. I mean, when Renee and I first started, our model was get to as many shows and as many cities across the country as you possibly can, like racing around the world. Yeah. Understanding this new element of how to use digital in connection with the road shows um, allows you to be selective about how you use your resources to get the highest possible return. Right, right. And I think that that's, if if you think, I mean, this is the thing about the distance from the shows is understanding what the show actually gives. And they the show actually gives lead generation. That's what it is. They give a qualified buyer. And yeah, you have the opportunity to buy, but that lead, that qualified buyer is amazing. That's what an art fair does. Even if they don't buy from you, you've got that lead. To get that online, like I was saying with the giveaways, you know, as a qualified buyer, I don't know. You know, it's a difficult uh, space. I got them in the door, but where do I get them to spend money? So that's, I think, a marriage of those two pieces, I think, is important to understand and position yourself. Expectations, right? Understand the expectations of it. Right. Well, I think we are going to wrap here. Okay. Uh, this has a been lot. a lot. A lot. <laughs> yes, it has been a lot. And, I mean, I thought I, I knew a lot about this, but you taught me so much new information and there's going to be a lot of tweaks going on in our business. I tell you that. Thank you so much. Yeah, good. Awesome. Yeah, the more we get art out there, the better. Yeah, maybe we could implement some of these uh, techniques and not have to be out on the road as much and be more selective uh, for 2022 and have a little more balance in our lives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a big piece, a big, big drawback, which has happened a few years is the weather and the weather events that we go through with these art fairs is just so volatile that we really need to think about that. I know. It's like, it's so triggering I remember after my first really bad weather event, a black cloud comes and I start to feel my heart race and panicking. It's, it's insane. I remember a story where you told me where you were driving up from Texas and you were saying that there was a tornado warning and you pulled over and yes. went into this subway and was in the fridge or the freezer yeah. with all these people as the tornado went through. It was crazy. I was driving home from um, the Oklahoma City Festival of the Arts. Yeah. And it was like the Sunday night breakdown. I was trying to get several hours, you know, up north, uh, you know, on my way home. Yeah. So I, once you get close to the Oklahoma border, it's pretty remote. And I couldn't tell how dark it was because it was nighttime, but it was just black and the van and the trailer start blowing all over the place. Uh, So I pull off at this gas station and I see people running inside, like running for their lives. So I head inside too, and they lock the door behind me. And they say, we all got to get into the walk-in refrigerator uh, because there was a tornado coming. I'm in the refrigerator using my flip phone, trying to text Renee oh where God. I'm at, where the old flip phones, you have to hit the button three times to actually yeah. get to the letter you want. It was insane. Oh <laughs> yeah, that story is just like, Bang, going, because I, I have driven through some terrible weather. I've never stopped and just thought, this is the craziest job. What am I doing? This is so nutty. 
Yeah. No rational person would choose it, but you know, we wouldn't have it any other way, yeah. would we? No, I mean, you know, the um, I miss I miss that excitement. I miss I, I mean, I don't miss the weather events, but I really miss the build up for a show and seeing other people and seeing what people are selling and what, how you know if you've been gone for a while from seeing people and then seeing their work and seeing what they're doing, it's yeah. great. Like it's just is so awesome. Being away from shows has been kind of dull for me, but getting involved in this podcast has really reignited a spark and it's it's actually making the work better. It's making me excited to make work and, you know, focusing on our industry again. It's just, it's all good. You know, there's light at the end of the tunnel here. It's all good. It'll happen. Just keep working, keep making art. Soon we'll be back to the life we once knew. Right. Marjolaine, thank you so much. See you in Palm Springs. You bet. Bye now. A big thank you to Marjolaine Vanderhart for coming on to the podcast today. She shared a lot of great info, but believe it or not, there's even more to learn. You can log on to her full 76 lesson course. The website is courses.vdhdigital.ca or on Facebook and Instagram, search up VDH Digital. VDH are the initials of her last name, Vanderhart, VDH Digital. Okay, on our next episode, we have Will's conversation with Stephen King, the executive director of the Des Moines Arts Festival. Stephen will discuss what goes on behind the scenes with launching his show in this age of COVID. It's a very interesting conversation. All right, well, we'll see you all next time. Thanks. This podcast has been brought to you by the National Association of Independent Artists. The website is naiaartists.org. And while you're at it, check out Will's website at willarmstrongart.com and my website at sigworthglass.com. And remember to subscribe to this podcast to be notified when we release new episodes. 